Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Well, hello, 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 hello again, everybody, and welcome to Dialed In with Tom Brenneman. Great to have you with us, kicking off a big weekend in college football, in the National Football League. You've got the baseball playoffs going on. I know a lot of people think that the spring is the best time of the year for sports, you know, when the NCAA tournament starts and the Major League Baseball season is starting and you're getting into the playoffs with the NBA and the NHL. I would make the argument right now is the best time uh, for sports. You got college football about midway through it, right? Things starting to shape up. It's going to be fun to see who's in a college football playoff. NFL, still early, third of the way through maybe. And uh, and then the baseball playoffs. Our guest today, now, now, now tell me here, okay, seriously. How cool would it be if you opened up, I don't know, some internet site or you opened up some magazine, if they even make magazines anymore, and you're referred to as the most powerful man in sports. I mean, think about that for a second, right? You grew up as a kid, you know, boy, girl makes no difference. You know, maybe, you know, you want to play college sports, soccer, baseball, lacrosse, basketball, football, whatever it might be. Um, But your talents don't let you go there. And yet you end up being known as the most powerful person in sports. That's a label that's been given to our guest today, Scott Boris. And what's amazing about that title is he has been an agent only for baseball players. He's not an agent for football players, not in the NFL. He's not an agent for NBA or hockey players. He has built that reputation on representing only Major League Baseball players. Billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars in contracts. And the names, laundry list, you name it. From Bryce Harper, Anthony Rendon, to Greg Maddox going back to the old days, Alex Rodriguez. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And we're going to talk to Scott Boris today about, you know, how he got started, grew up on a dairy farm, uh, was an outstanding prospect as a player himself before injuries derailed his aspirations to play in the big leagues, and talk about the future of Major League Baseball, uh, the way it's played on the field, right, which is what the consumer is trying to take in, and apparently not as many as there used to be. Um, To the business side of things, there's a CBA coming up. Will there be a strike? Will there be a lockout in 2022 in baseball? We'll talk about all that and more. We thank our producer engineer, as always, Dave Armbruster, for all his outstanding work. We thank Mike Reed for the music for our program today. And we thank our friends at the Believe Network for believing in the show. Dialed in with Tom Brenneman, Scott Boris, up next. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. 
Visit www.chnk.org for more details or for the free conversation with a therapist. Call 1-844-YES-CHNK. Living with Change is a nonprofit organization supporting transgender youth and their families. Transgender youth face higher rates of violence, victimization, substance abuse, suicide risk, and homelessness, but have few resources to help deal with those issues. To combat those numbers and in partnership with Cincinnati's Children's Hospital, LWC created with Living with Change Center for Gender Health, serving more transgender patients and families than any other center in the Midwest. For more, please log on to livingwithchange.org. He's been called the most powerful man in baseball. He's been called the most powerful man in all of sports. I mean, imagine that title, right? Scott Boris, 68 years old, grew up the son of a dairy farmer in Elk Grove, California. Grew up playing athletics like a lot of kids all across this country, all over the world. He wound up walking on to play baseball at the University of the Pacific and wound up being inducted into the school's Sports Hall of Fame. He played four years in minor league baseball, was a big-time prospect, was an all-star, a couple of different levels, and then all of a sudden knee injuries would eventually catch up and derail aspirations of a major league career. So at that point, what do you do, right? A lot of guys go back to their hometown. They find this to do, find that to do, not score at Boris. He ends up getting a doctor of pharmacy degree, then gets a law degree, and in 1980, he starts his career as a baseball agent. Scott Boris, thanks so much for joining us here today. He's a longtime husband and a father of three, and he just keeps on keeping on. I saw you on uh, TV a couple of times this week, Scott. You were at an NFL game sitting there with Max Scherzer, and then you were at the game that Scherzer pitched the other night in the one-game playoff against the um, St. Louis Cardinals. You're nonstop. Well, it's it, it's nice to be uh, invited, and, and it's certainly great to uh... – uh, listen to a guy's game plan about what he's going to do in the wild card game or watching an NFL game. I, I wasn't paying too much <laughs> attention to the NFL game, to be honest with you. But uh, I uh, um, certainly, uh, you know, we I got to watch the wild card game with Juan Soto and and uh, and Kevin Long. So we we got a, a very instructive uh, idea of pitch count setups. What to do in games, and it's uh, it's always great fun, great fun. What a privilege! You know, I got to ask you, Scott. Um, I'm sitting there watching the game the other night with my son, and 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 I have just marveled at Max Scherzer. Uh, I, I know you and I uh, years and years ago when I was with the Diamondbacks, and he was originally a first round draft pick out of Missouri uh, for the Diamondbacks. Obviously, uh, shortly thereafter, he's no longer with that, that franchise. He goes on to become one of the great pitchers in the history of baseball. Um, I was really surprised they took him out of that game the other night. There, there are pitchers out there, and then there are pitchers out there. Um, were you surprised? And I'm not asking you to sit here and second guess because it all played out fine. Kelly came in, got the job done in that inning, and and the Dodgers would not allow another run out of their bullpen the rest of their game. But, you know, I mean, were you surprised Scherzer was taken out? Well, I think the uh, certainly in any normal year, to have someone of that caliber on the mound, um, particularly with the sequencing of having 
Arenado up, but more important to me was who was following Arenado was a, you know, Carlson is a really great young player, but it's his first time in a playoff setting. And usually those veteran starters manage those players very, very well. Um, And the one thing I think, and again, far be it from me, I'm not a manager. You've got to know your bullpen. You've got to know your matchups. You've got to know all of the things that, that pertain to uh, that decision-making. But the one thing that we're seeing, you know, we're seeing our veteran starters, they had to take innings jumps from 60 and 70 innings due to the COVID season in 20. And now it's impossible to condition yourself and be accustomed to add on to those 180 marks now that we're reaching because that's a, an innings jump of almost – a hundred innings for all these starters. So I think the one thing we're going to see, Tom, is that in the playoffs, we're going to see the veteran starters, instead of going seven and eight, we're going to see them going four to five because they frankly didn't have the normal um, workup to build that innings foundation that they get from year to year in these seasons. But you and I both know, Scott, you've forgotten more about it than I know, but I had the privilege of sitting there for 35 years and announcing a Major League Baseball game virtually every day for six, seven months a year for a long, long time. And due to the advent of sabermetrics, um, you know, the, the game's been starting to shift even, you know, pro, pre-COVID um, where, you know, they're they're getting starters out when they hit you know that 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 sacred for whatever number that is a hundred pitches and they're getting guys out of the game and you know one of your big time clients um, it really kind of ignited your careers in many ways uh, Greg Maddox I remember him saying to me a hundred years ago he said you know when you're coming up through the minor leagues you really don't ever learn how to pitch and pitch out of trouble until you get to that one hundred pitch mark. And now you're being left in a minor league game in the 6th or the 7th or the 8th inning to battle your way through that. We're really not giving guys much of a chance to do that at all anymore, are we? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think what we found is that we sign a lot of pitchers, but few people actually tell you what is the durability of those pitchers after they sign them. We know from our database that almost 80% of the pitchers that start a game in the major leagues, in four years, uh, you're only going to see, you, you will not see anything of that, of that 80 pitchers. You will see only 20% of them continue to be a starter. Normally, it's for lack of durability. Secondarily, for lack of skill to sustain it. But most of these pitchers that are signed, the scouts are very right. They have arm strength. They have abilities. They have the things to do. But the thing is that they come into pro ball, and a lot of times the bodies aren't fully developed to where it can withstand the, the real kinetic force that that arm puts on. And they, they have the ability to do it, to throw hard, but they don't have the ability to sustain it because their bodies aren't mature. And so I'm all about, you know, like in Max's case, we did not have many innings on his arm at all until he began really around 24, 25. And we titrated that as we go. Now, your point, yes, 
those pitchers normally at that age are not that good because the major leagues is a very different place than the minor leagues. Sure. And knowing how to commandeer your skills, knowing the hitters, knowing how to do things out of the stretch, because most of these dominant pitchers, they don't pitch out of the stretch very often because their arm strength's so dominant, they get a lot of strikeouts. And when they get a lot of strikeouts in the minor league, their pitch counts are up. So consequently, they never, ever get to pitch deep into games because they're striking out a lot of players. So there's a whole acclimation process and learning curve at the major league level that occurs with great young arms. And that's, uh, I think, where, again, where the real learning and teaching of, of how to command what you do take your skills to that level is done at the major leagues. Scott, I, I want to dig into that a little bit deeper uh, because you've always been on the cutting edge since you really started your practice and started finding success and building up your client base and all this kind of thing on on not only uh, financially helping players, whether they be high school guys, college guys, guys that are already in the big leagues, whatever it may be, in their next contract and this and that and where they're playing, but you're also uh, right on the cutting edge of everything as far as trying to develop uh, these young men. And from a straight physical standpoint, if you signed my son uh, to be one of your clients and he's coming out of high school, you mentioned earlier, you know, the body's not fully developed, all that kind of thing. What are you doing for the 18-year-old kid as far as his game plan physically is concerned? Well, remember that we measure arm strength, and certainly that is the category that gets um, – in the scouting world that gets the, uh, the player's evaluation is value and, and obviously gets them signed usually in the first round. But what we bring in, we sometimes have, it depends on the athlete's body. You have a, a very precocious player with arm strength, but you're, that comes with many bodies. You might have a six foot player. You might have a six foot seven player. You have to, first of all, assess the body. And then you have to measure we have a sport fitness institute. We have our own training. We have 10 trainers, and we have a former uh, head of, of strength and conditioning for that used to work for a major league team for, for 15 years before he came and started our institute with us. And, and that has a lot to do with the idea of measurement. And we have all testing modalities that we put them through to know where their strength is. And sometimes you have rare, you have high school athletes <clears> where they're <throat> mature and they have great strength majority of them you're going to say compared to a major league pitcher who's 25 or 26 their measurements are 15 percent below but their arm strength is the same so we then know that we have got to get and we communicate with the teams and work with their training staffs that we've got to get this body to the level of where we know that major league strength and durability um, will support the stress factors that are brought to the upper body, and we have to have the strength to transfer it to the to the earth so that it's not in the elbow and the shoulder. All those assessments must be done, and and certainly we see great talents go to the big leagues. You know, I had a pitcher, Steve Avery. You know, was yep. an amazing pitcher, and I learned a lot. And I learned he was he was remarkable, and he was throwing 220, 230 innings a year because they were in the playoffs every year. And he was 21 years of age, 22, and he worked hard and he was in shape. But his body was completely different at 25 than it was at 20. 
You know, he was 10, 20 pounds heavier, Mm -hmm. the strength level, the conditioning programs. But Steve lost arm strength, significant arm strength, in his, right at 27, 28. This happened to Dwight Gooden. It happened to Fernando de Valenzuela. It happened to, uh, you know, Felix Hernandez. I can give you a laundry list of players that threw a lot of innings at a young age, and they had the ability to sustain themselves in the major leagues. But when you get to 29 and 30, their careers were a shadow of what they were when they were younger. So our job is to communicate to uh, understand. We look at every player individually, work with the team, and try to put in protective uh, information so that we can not only we can get the player to the major leagues, uh, certainly when he's ready skill-wise, but also understand what we need to do with them from a durability standpoint so that they, they can have longer careers and stayed careers. I'm curious your opinion, you know, I, I want to get into sabermetrics a little bit more, Scott, because, you know, you start evaluating players statistically and you start to evaluate them differently than maybe baseball had for a long, long time. But but I, I, I want to actually go into this part of it a little bit more. Well, no, no, let me just ask you point blank. Do you think sabermetrics has been good for baseball? Well, remember... We were, I have a staff of 140 people, and MIT, Stanford, Harvard, Yale, we started developing our algorithms and our evaluations uh, long ago. But the one thing is that to get a true analytic path, you have to have cameras, you have to have the technology that brings the information and supports it. Now, and remember that analytic the analytic community is a post-performance community. And you and I both know that I believe that what is almost more important or certainly equally important is what you do to ready an athlete pre-performance mentally and physically so that we can deliver the post-performance evaluation that analytics bring. So you don't ever see on paper what we're doing mentally to get a guy locked in, to get him focused. There is no analytic path that is delivered. And yet that is such an important part of evaluating a player and also such an important part of the execution by the player during the game. And so when you talk about analytics, I think they're very helpful because they are a mirror of what stands before you after performance. But it also leaves a lot to be desired about who the player is, what they do, how they prepare, uh, and, and what they think while they're actually performing. So with that said, I think analytics certainly have a place. Uh, they have a look. They tell you things. But it is far from the total picture. You go and you look at driveline, and, you know, the Cincinnati Reds brought on Kyle Boddy, and I'm not going to ask you what you think of him or what he's doing one way or another because that's part of analytics and, like you said, in kinesiology and some of the things that are going on. Scott, the, the part that I have a hard time kind of swallowing is the direction some of these franchises are going where they're asking a guy who never pitched minor league baseball, uh, maybe never pitched collegiately at baseball, has never been a pitching coach, 
And in some cases, they're making the guy the pitching coach at the major league level based on all of these other things, as opposed to a guy who could bring you some experience that's been in that position before. You know where I'm going with this? I mean, I, I just find it hard to believe that there are teams that are actually putting people in the position of being the pitching coach for young pitchers they're trying to develop at single A, double A, and then even some cases in the major leagues, the Cubs a couple of years ago, where a guy's never thrown a pitch even in college in his life, and now he's going to walk to the mound and talk to John Lester? I think the component on that is that there are many stories, and there there's, there's always the place where – a average pitcher has been made above average by him understanding rotational dynamics, movements, you know, channeling that information, um, using the cameras to give you more information about your capacities or and how you can enhance them. And I think what you're talking about, Tom, is that you're in a game you certainly know what you can do as a pitcher, but what are you going to do about emotional management? Yep. What are you going to do when you go out and before the big game, it's your first playoff game. What are you going to do when it's your first game in the major leagues? What are you going to do when you're in, um, you have a lot of traffic and you're dealing with that and you start to look at things and say, how am I managing what I'm doing emotionally? How do I prepare? What do I do the day before? All of these things. So the situational dynamics of having a, a performance master, if you will, someone who's been there, done that, and do things, is that I constantly seek that information. I was in Detroit recently, and I went up to Jack Morris, and I said, tell me your transition points. Tell me when you got to the mm -hmm. big leagues and someone said something to you that was really, really eventful and career-changing. And, and Jack talked to me about his balance, how he learned his balance and how Doyle Alexander helped him. And it changed his career from his perspective. That was not about whether he had 2,600 or 24, 2,200 rotations. It's nice to know that and enough to do it. Mm -hmm. But what I find is what I know in my job and what I do with players and being in the game a long time, the majority of my conversations with them when they have needs are about emotional management, the direction of what they're thinking, deal with trusting themselves rather than trying, overperforming in situations, making sure they're prepared, and taking on the different stages that a career brings. That is largely experiential, largely psychological, but on the other side is we have had players that have really, really benefited from knowing aspects of their vertical and horizontal movement, adjustments on the ball, um, what they've been doing with their mechanics. So uh, there is no answer to me with one expertise versus another. If you're asking me in game settings, I would say that those people that are familiar with the, the dynamic, have experienced it, are going to be more, 
more valued in the game setting because you're not talking about technical rotation. Right. You're not talking about developing pitches. You're talking about executing pitches in the moment. And when you're talking about that function of it, I would say that the the traditional pitching coach concept of having a veteran major leaguer serve that role would be more beneficial. If you're talking about developing, working, bullpens, off-season, particularly uh, looking at your pitches, those kind of things are more for when you're uh, looking about how to control and or execute a new pitch or to understand how to better the current pitches you have. So there's a developmental side and there's an execution side, and I think there's a place for both but uh, in, a, in, a, in a circumstance. Do you like the, the, the way, Scott, the game is being played right now? I mean, when, when you sit down to watch a game, and look, it's your business, so you, know, you have to sit down and watch games and do it every single night. But do, do you like the style of play on the field that, that, that we're seeing now where you know, there, there's obviously a lot more walks, strikeouts, home runs, there's very little hitting and running, there's very little stealing bases, um, you know, a lot of the things are being based strictly off numbers. You like the game right now? No. No, I don't. And I'll tell you why. I want... I want, you know, I, I have like a lot of great NFL type high school athletes that are brilliant athletes. I go watch them play. What's the one thing they can't do? Can't hit. And you know what? For those of us who played and those of us who could hit, you know, and that's what got us into the, you know, the ability to get a chance to play pro baseball because that quality, that, that's the dynamic. We want hard contact. We want action. I want the complete player rewarded. I want the guy that when you have a second baseman, he can't be the guy that's just a big-bodied guy because I'm moving the shortstop over and I'm putting the shift on. And now I've got all my left-handed power hitters that are just hitting the ball hard and they're getting no reward for it because somebody is sitting out there in mid-right field and throwing them out, which would otherwise be a base hit. No, uh, you want hard hit hard contact which is a hard thing to do you want that rewarded and you want it sought after i don't want left i don't want anybody coming to me now and say i need to be a right-handed hitter because you know what you only have two players on that side of the infield i don't want to hit left-handed anymore and then you know what I, all my power hitters are going to i i don't, don't want to hit 210 i don't want to hit 100 I, and you know what i they saying go the other way well they they trained me to be a power hitter right right and so so all these things to me have caused irregular i also have players playing out of position i've got youth baseball that that i want the players to learn how to play i don't want them trying to do things where they're out of position i want them familiar with it you know i got manny machado catching a ball in the warning track you know those kinds of things right you you that that is we want complete out we we need to have second basemen that are defenders and that means that their range is important when they put all those guys on one side of the infield then the range of a second baseman is not important and they can put a less athletic person out there who is who is not a good as good a player as a normal second baseman would be if you if you had to operate under the normal theater of only two players on each side of the diamond so these are things to me that would increase action Increased athleticism. It also advances the decomp uh, the uh, defensive component of the game, and and when you hit the ball hard, you're rewarded for it. I think that's an important part because otherwise, come up and swing and miss, and they strike out, or they're going to hit a home run. 
And so the reality of it is we're not seeing the game being played where there are situ- more situations, more people on base, and more hitters where they're trying to focus on seeing the ball and hitting the ball hard. It's one thing, Scott, to talk about the finances of the game and the upcoming CBA, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But, you know, what, what it sounds like you're suggesting, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, I mean, you're not a fan of the shift, it sounds like, and all the shifting that's going on in baseball. Do you think some of those things from a rule standpoint will be changed in the upcoming CBA or addressed? I think it's a must because we want action. The shift works. The shift takes takes players who are significant hitters and these guys are hitting 50 60 points below what their average would otherwise be and it, it you know you you got left-handed power hitters that were coming into me and they're hitting 220 and 210 and, and they're it's psychologically uh, demeaning and the reason is because I can I can show you 20 30 hits that would otherwise be hits but they're right at that you know that you've crowded sure. four infielders on that side. So the, these kinds of things we we have to say, what's it doing to the game? Well, it's preventing more offense. It's preventing us from a category of a player that's exciting, and it, it's preventing us from having more athletic second basemen and a demand for more complete players. And I think our game is about the best nature of the game, and that is action, athleticism, the greatest athletes so that we, the fan knows he's going to come to the ballpark and he's going to see uh, situations that are exciting. Not swing and miss. It's be runners on first and second and one out and what they're going to do, the value of the double play, the value of the great defensive play, the value of, of, of a hard-hit ball to drive in the run. All those things I think fans want, and, and we've got to restructure our game to get back to it. This coming CBA, uh, where are you on a confidence level that there's not going to be a work stoppage? You know, whether it's a a lockout, whether it's a strike, whatever the case may be. Where where are you right now as we sit here in October of 2021? You know, having done this for a long time, I think we have a great group of owners. I think we have a good group that they care about winning and they care about being competitive. There are a few in this process that clearly do not. And my, and my point is that, that when you, you want to build a fan base and you have to have identifiable stars because this is a human business. People relate to people they know and that they've grown with. And that means owners have to sign players who come up through their system and they've got to keep them and they've got to attract stars because that's what people want to see. They want to see the best. And when we come into the game, the great thing about our game is our revenues in 1990 were $1 billion, $3 billion in 2000, and, and in 2010 they were $7 billion, and now they're $12 billion. Our game is growing. The economics of it are tremendous. And you know what? So now the issue is not whether or not we're successful, not whether or not we generate revenues. The issue is the division of, those, um, of that so we do it. And I've always told owners, I go, look, you guys want to talk about payrolls and you want to talk about disparity among yourselves. And the answer to it is, is that you have something that's highly successful. You have to calibrate. And we know we've listened. We want revenue sharing. We want dynamics that go on 
and they're going to make the game greater, greater parity, all these things. And we've heard it in 96, you know, when Bud was the commissioner and, and, and what Rob's had to say recently, it's the same things. And you know what? That format has not worked. What's worked is that the owners are making more money and the players are making less. That's the only aspect of it that's worked. The parity part of it and, and the dynamics of clubs investing more in players, as they said they would, we have we have we have the the New York Yankees are spending as much money today as they did in 2004. We have we have more clubs spending way under the revenue percentage of what they had in the prior decades. We have eight or nine teams doing that. We only had three or four before. So the the, the success is there, but the the rhythm of what they've had to say has been tried. We tried to put these restraints. We've done these things. We've listened, and we've we've done all that. But you know what? It has not resulted in what they said was going to happen. Benefits to the game, and the reason that hasn't happened is because that the idea of what they said was going to work led to more profits. But those profits were used to do what? Build ancillary things around the ballpark that are not taxed on, or used for personal. Uh, dynamics of paying down the cost of the acquisition of a franchise. It's been used for that, but it's not been used for for uh, players and to benefit teams and to get better for the most part. Tell me, Scott Boris, um, why um, you do you see anything positive at all, anything positive at all about a salary cap in baseball? Salary caps are proven not to have worked. In the NBA, you go in and you talk about what it's resulted in. What it's resulted in is that the elite players are not getting played their value. And you know what? The elite players, because of that, all migrate now to who? To selected teams that, so there's no parity. So now, now the other teams, they can't win because they have no way to attract the players. Because the players go play, the elite players go play with the elite players, and the reality of it is because the separation, there's no economic separation. Because so then, what do the players look to? They look to saying, "I don't want to play for all these teams. I only want to play for this team because I want to play with that player." So the idea of it is, you have to have a system that is free. It allows intellect to operate. It allows an owner to create a brand that's attractive, and you have to have that freedom. Otherwise, you are going to create things that we've already seen operate in the NFL and in the in the NBA, where we've got essentially the Lakers are still the Lakers. You know, the Patriots have won all those years, and the answer to that is because players want to go play for a particular franchise or owner because of the roster they have rather than they're being attracted by a new owner because of greater economics. And so when you take that away, you're still going to end up with a lack of parity. So now that we know that and we have that model, the answer that the salary cap is never an answer because all that does is allow for what? It allows for owners to be less creative. It allows for franchises to do what's necessary at a particular time. Because sometimes you may need to go and keep a group of 
five players that all of a sudden turned successful in my franchise. You know, I, I had the Posada, Pettit, uh, Bernie Williams, Jeter, um, um, you know, scenario where I've got five Yankees that are really good and I need to keep them all, and then I can just build around them. That's going to cost me a lot more, but I have a chance to win four or five championships if I keep them for nine or ten years. So then I need to spend a lot more to do that. And yet another instance is when I don't have that, I'm going to spend a lot less because I, I can't put together the winning team to do it. So that it creates flex. It allows you to do what you need to do to be a champion. And when you do that, then all of a sudden an owner has to be more excited because there are no artificial limits. And when you talk about floors, we saw in the NBA that to meet those floors, there were players that were, shouldn't have been paid certain amounts of money because the owners had to do it. I'm all about competitiveness. You want draft picks? You know, you want revenue sharing? Then you have to meet a competitive level to get it. Mm-hmm. And if you don't meet that competitive level and you tank, and you look at, look at, look at the um, National League Central, we had two tanking teams. Cubs sold off. You know, the Pirates sold off. And now look how that affected that race. It allowed the Cardinals to jump in and win 17 in a row. It allowed them to have a significant part in that. And that affected the races and affects what we do. We don't want that. We want more of a continuum where you have a reason to win, even though it's not about winning the championship. You have a reason to win because you want things that allow you to win in the future. And to me, that's competition requirements of saying you don't get the draft picks and you don't get the revenue sharing unless you are competitive. And that to me is the best way to allow for parity and allow for consistency in the game and allow to make sure that we don't, because remember the minute we put a cap on a draft hub, the minute we did that happened tanking because now the value of draft picks went up five times and the owners started doing what? They started saying, I can't win, so I'm going to dump my team for the next three years. It's going to affect division region, affect the, 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 really the parity of the game, and what do I do? Also, I can get high draft picks. Do you think there's going to be a labor stoppage before next season? You know, I, we're success because if it does, the damage it would do economically to the game is so tremendous. This isn't 94 where the revenues were a billion and a half dollars. And when you five days, it may have cost three or 400 million. Now it would cost three or 4 billion. If I am a parent and, um, and I have a son that, you know, looks like he's going to be a, a big prospect, uh, high draft choice, whatever the case may be. Why Scott Boris and your group, as opposed to somebody else? Well, I always tell uh, families that you have to look at percentages in our business. This, this is not this is not a career. <laughs> this is an opportunity. And you look at the percentages. You know, you take a first-round draft pick pitcher out of high school, how many of them spend six years in the major leagues? Well, the answer would be about 14%. That would be about it. And you're going, wait a minute, but my, my son's the best. He's, he's from, <laughs> yeah, told me. you know, I always tell families, I go, you know what? When the coaches started coming, picking you up when you're nine years old, that always happened. Here they come. 
And you know what? It never stopped. Why? Because you could run better. You could throw better. You could, you could hit better. You could do things. You could pitch. They come. But that day comes when that, they stop coming. And that comes when you sign and you get into the system. They're going to give you about three, four years. And if you don't demonstrate, if you don't separate yourself, they're going to bring in the next draft and do that. So being a high draft pick is not the goal. So you need to understand the game from that, from that perspective. And I go, my job as an attorney, I'm not an agent. I'm an attorney. I'm here to protect you and protect your life. You have opportunities. You have choices. And you have to really, really sit down and look about the, the, what your choice is. Because this choice is about your success and what you're going to do. It'd be nice if baseball's a part of it, but I got to tell you. So then you have to look about systems. You know, I spend millions of dollars to make sure that they have the support, that they have resources that others can't provide. Remember, we don't, we don't charge players until they, until really uh, they become arbitration eligible in the major leagues. And that may be seven or eight years after the day they sign. Mm-hmm. And we really don't, you know, we, we, we're, you, you don't, the economics of our business are is the player kind of has to be a free agent before you really get a return on investment. So you have to be committed to him and he has to be committed to you and the system to go in and put in that eight to 10 years to arrive at that point. And so it's a, it's a very strong relationship and, and I don't represent other sports. I turn, I turn down football, basketball, hockey. I, I don't do it. You can negotiate a lot of things because I spend 24 seven with our game because this game gave me everything I have. And I'm going to devote all my time and effort to it to try to make it better and, and try to understand it and, and learn and, and, and make it a priority and make it your life. And, and if it's your son's life, then you understand it's our life, too. Well, Scott, I can't thank you enough for the time. I mean, there, there are 10,000 questions I could ask you about because I just think you have such a, a, a unique perspective. Don't necessarily agree with all of it. Hell, uh, none of us agree on everything. But, but you know, it, it, what you've done in the game is, is just amazing. Uh, and, and I know that every single player who's ever had you represent them uh, or, or be their lawyer, um, you know, I mean, they, they rave about you. It's not to say, you know, every blue moon you don't have this relationship or that relationship that doesn't turn out the way. Hell, all of us got that. But um, it's been amazing to watch you and continue to watch you and the, and the energy and you and your staff and, and what you do for your players. I thank you for thinking of me. I really uh, do. All right. Scott Boris, kind enough to join us. Scott, thanks so much. Take care of yourself. Good luck in the postseason. We'll be checking back in with Scott as time moves forward. And, um, you know, let's enjoy it. I mean, look, this is a time of the year. It's supposed to be fun. I wish the games were faster. I mean, I got to tell you, um, I, I sat around the other night um, uh, with our son, who is a lacrosse player. Um, and so that's a sport, same season as baseball. And so, you know, he's more into that now, but he still likes watching the game. Uh, watching a nine-inning game that's four hours old is hard to watch. It's really hard to watch. Uh, and the average length of time in a baseball game this year surpassed three hours and ten minutes average. Uh, there's a lot of work for baseball to be done. I mean, I know money's important, and you know, getting guys paid and teams and not tanking and all these kinds of things that Scott was just talking about. But at the end of the day, it's the product. Once you roll the ball out on the field, I don't care what the sport is or the court, what's the product that people are watching, and are they interested, and are they captivated by the product? 
And I would say right now, there are a lot of people having a hard time being captivated by the, by the product. And I think you heard Scott Boris just say the exact same thing. We thank Dave Armbruster, our engineer. We thank the folks at the Believe Network. And uh, we thank Scott Boris. I'm Tom Brenneman, and you are dialed in. We'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.